0: Good morning, everybody. This morning we're talking really a two-part lesson. Uh, I'll be giving the lesson this morning and then next Sunday, Lord willing. Peter uh, hopefully will be recovered well enough to, uh, to be here and he'll be leading the, the second part. And the, the common denominator between the two lessons will be the spiritual realm, if you will. And in introducing that theme this morning, I want to... I want to persuade everybody, at the very least remind everybody of the fundamental reality of the spiritual realm. I think sometimes we can forget. We live in a culture that is very much opposed to those sorts of ways of thinking and seeing the world. And as a result of that, I think that um, even Christians can become confused, perhaps doubtful about uh, such things and so I'm hoping to bring some clarity. I must admit this is the very first time I've ever taught a lesson about angels and that surprised me when I thought about it because angels are such a common topic in the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testament scriptures. But more about that in a a moment. I want to begin with a reading from Screwtape Letters. If you're not familiar with this book, I would highly recommend that you might get a hold of it. Uh, C.S. Lewis, now deceased, a a, a genius in his ability to communicate spiritual truths and um, Screwtape Letters is, is a classic example. Let's listen in to a conversation between Screwtape The master demon, as he instructs Wormwood, his apprentice. And Wormwood, of course, is charged with the responsibility, he's assigned to a human to lead that human astray, certainly to keep him separated from the master, from God. My dear Wormwood... I wonder, you should ask me, whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. The patient, of course, is the human. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command, that is, the devil. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and sceptics, at least not yet. I have great hopes that we should learn in due time how to emotionalise and mythologise their science to such an extent that what is in effect a belief in us, though not under that name, will creep in while the human mind remains closed to belief in the enemy. The enemy, of course, being God. The life force, the worship of sex, some aspects of psychoanalysis, they may here may prove useful. But in the meantime, we must obey our orders. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, It's an old textbook method of confusing them. He therefore cannot believe in you. In the modern era, advances in science and technology have demystified much of how God's world works. I think that's a fundamental truth two-edged sword, really, many blessings have flowed from science, modern science and technology. But at the same time, it has led in a strange direction, at least in the thinking of many people. You see, many have mistakenly assumed that everything, therefore, can be understood in purely physical, material terms. And the entire notion of a, a metaphysical, that is, meta beyond the mere physical, or non-material dimension and mode of life is Unnecessary, irrelevant to life, perhaps, perhaps even imaginary. John Lennox explains the fallacy, I think, rather well this way. Just because we understand the mechanics of the mass production of Ford motor cars doesn't mean that Henry Ford is irrelevant or that he's a figment of our imaginations. We can marvel at science We can be appreciative of science and the technology that flows from that. Where we go astray is if we think that somehow, strangely, that science excludes God. Rather, we marvel at science as we begin to explore and understand and appreciate the wonders of God's doings, the wonders of God's world. The social climate of doubt regarding the authenticity of anything spiritual has serious implications for Christians today. The tendency can be to operate as practical materialists and deists. By practical, I mean, though in our head we might say something and we might even think we believe something. We might believe in angels, for example. But in the practical everyday life, we tend to live as if it wasn't true, as if such things were not indeed a reality. Deus is a term for a belief in God, yes, but a belief in a God who is remote and unconcerned. It's kind of like the, uh, the, the, the idea of the world is a clock that God made in the beginning wound it up to operate, but then walked away and has no concern, no involvement with the world. Again, we wouldn't consent to that in theory if challenged about how we see and understand God. But in practice, in our day-to-day lives, I wonder if sometimes we mightn't be seen to be actually living that way, as if God didn't really not not exist but that God really isn't a a direct and personal uh, factor in our lives, personally involved in our lives. Or, of course, we can react as as extremes beget extremes. We can react and be pushed in the opposite direction where the, 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 the religious superstition and gullibility that so many people, with some degree of credibility, accuse religious people sometimes. You just, you know, off with the fairies sort of thing. I want to suggest to you that that's an extreme in the other other direction. Biblically, well, biblically, that's what we're here this morning to consider. What has God revealed in scripture regarding spirit beings, the spiritual realms? Well, to summarise in two uh, stages, first of all, which is our focus this morning, uh, considerations of the heavenly host, as scripture describes it, including the divine council and angels. And then secondly, which as I said, Peter will be exploring with us next Sunday, the devil, fallen angels, demons and the occult. I want to draw your attention to those two contexts from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus that highlight, certainly from Paul's point of view, the reality of spiritual realms. Beginning there, first of all, in Ephesians chapter 3, his intent was that now through the church, that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Clearly in Paul's mind there is no doubt about the reality of the existence of what he describes as rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 6, he speaks of our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood, it's not just on a physical plane, a physical level but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so it seems that heavenly realms, the phrase that Paul uses here, effectively speaks to the spiritual or metaphysical dimension. And I want to introduce that idea, that contrast, if you will, with this idea that God has two families. One is made up of metaphysical beings, again, beyond physical, not limited to the physical. Metaphysical beings that operate largely within the heavenly realm. That is a dimension or dimensions that lie outside of our four physical dimensions. This is the heavenly host, including the divine council, the cherubim and the seraphim, the innumerable angels, all of whom God created to serve his purposes. The other is made up of physical beings that operate in the earthly realm, that is, within the four physical dimensions of length and width and depth and time. This is us. This is humanity created by God in his image to exercise dominion over the physical creation as God's representatives. It's a priestly role, if you will, if we conceive of the universe as God's temple. Notice though this very important point, the earthly and heavenly realms are not independent or unrelated. Oftentimes we fall into that mistake of dualism where we think of there's there's the material world as opposed to the spiritual world. That's the sort of thinking that was made very popular by Plato. And it has had some significant impact down through the centuries, even in the church when we come to think about uh, body and spirit, if you will. Rather, the biblical image is that the two are overlapped, the two belong together. Whether we talk about our identity as human beings, embodied spirits, or whether we talk about the reality of life, the reality of, of, of the cosmos, of all of God's creation, the heavenlies as well as the earthly. They coincide alongside of one another. It's simply that from our human perspective, with all of the limitations of our creatureliness, the earthly or physical dimension is seen whereas the heavenly or metaphysical dimension is unseen. Now, to help, I guess, impress what I would want to communicate about this idea that that the, the two worlds are not independent or unrelated, a couple of examples from scripture. Before I turn to that, though, I want to, show you, I want to describe to you what I think is a, a misconception more, more derived from Greek philosophy than it is from the scriptures. A common conception of the material world is here on planet Earth, quite rightly so. Uh, all of the cosmos is, 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 is part of that physical creation. But when we think of the spiritual realm, typically we think of something up there and we describe it as as heaven. And there perhaps is pictured God on his throne in, in, in heaven. And that they are totally separate realms, if you will. And I want to suggest to you that that's not the best picture to have based upon the biblical evidence, the biblical testimony. And I want to justify that statement with a couple of examples. Here, for example, in 2 Kings chapter 6, we have an incident somewhat similar to that which, um, which Trav uh, led us through this morning. And I don't know if that was intended on Trav's part or if it was just God's providence, but it dovetails nicely with this point I want to make. When you heard Trav describe that scenario, I wonder what you were thinking. I know some people would think, oh, that's just a fairy tale. Others might think, well, it has to be described in or explained in natural terms. So maybe maybe there was a really fierce thunderstorm or something that that made all that racket, that, 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 that frightened that whole army that they would just despair and run for their lives. Well... I want to suggest to you that what happened was that God intervened and though in that case not explicitly credited to angels, I would suggest that in all probability it was an army of angels that was the source of the fear For those individuals Let's pick up with this narrative uh, In 2 Kings chapter 6 The servant of the man of God That is Elisha The servant of Elisha Got up and went out early the next morning And an army with horses and chariots Had surrounded the city Now picture that You wake up in the morning mm, Brand new day Step outside of the bedroom chamber Out onto the, the, the veranda And all of a sudden You're confronted with an army one could well understand the servant's despair. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asks. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and listened to this phrase, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now I want you to notice how that reality, that spiritual reality was always there. It was just that the servant needed to be granted the vision to see what was already there. Another example, a classic story, and I'd be surprised if everybody in this room isn't familiar, at least to some degree, with the story of Balaam and his donkey. Balaam and his ass. And I need to be careful how I pronounce that because on a few occasions I've got, in an interview I said that the I pronounced it the wrong way and I got into trouble. Um, the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn, so he bowed low and fell face down. You, you know the background of that, that this poor donkey's going along. It can see what Balaam cannot see. There's the angel of the Lord with a sword ready to strike Balaam and, and the donkey is, is pulling aside to save the master's life. But the master whose eyes are closed to the reality of the spiritual realm, you see, doesn't understand, so he gets angry and he beats the donkey until Balaam's eyes are opened and he can see what the donkey could see and there is the spiritual reality right there. Another one, a surprising application perhaps, this one from the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2. I don't know how you might have Hoped with this bit of information in the past. Maybe we just gloss over it and in our familiarity don't really stop to dwell and think about the implications. But here it is. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now I don't want to get too speculative. But I can confidently say this, according to the writer of Hebrews, some people have unknowingly entertained angels. And that suggests to me very strongly the probability, possibility absolutely, probability probably, that there are angels around us. At least that's an assumption upon which we should operate. If that wasn't the case, how on earth would you entertain angels unawares? So what I'm trying to persuade you of is to not think of the spiritual realm as something that's irrelevant, that's so distant, so, so unrelated to our here and now that it really doesn't matter. I want to suggest to you that it does matter if we will have the eyes to see and to understand and appreciate God's concern and God's activity in this world. Here's another example. Again, I wonder, I wonder if we thought this through in the past. These are some snippets to begin with from from Daniel, um, in Daniel chapter 10. An unnamed angel comes to Daniel. And he engages in conversation. He's got a message for Daniel and he engages in conversation. But first of all, he begins by explaining why he's been so delayed in coming. The prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now, at this stage, you might think King of Persia, okay, Cyrus, Darius. Well, I don't think that fits the bill, especially as we read on. This is the same context, the same angel, unnamed angel speaking. So he said, Do you know why I've come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, except Michael, your prince. Michael, elsewhere in Jude, described as the archangel. Your prince, the prince of Israel, the angel that fights for Israel. I want to suggest to you in the context that this prince of Persia and the prince to come, the prince of Greece, is not talking about Alexander the Great or any earthly king or ruler. It's talking about, remember what Paul described as governments, rulers in the heavenlies. This is talking about a cosmic warfare, on a level fought by angelic beings now well i 'll just read the, the reference here in revelation just to give you a big a big sweeping picture that John gives in Revelation chapter twelve: War broke out in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, the devil, and the dragon and his angels fought back. It would seem to me that that 's precisely what this angel that approaches Daniel, is is speaking of, is describing this same sort of activity. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, when we think about world affairs, we can think in terms of screw tape, as C.S. Lewis so cleverly describes, on an individual level. Malevolent demons working against us, trying to undermine our relationship with with God but even at a national level there are malevolent forces at work when we are confronted with just in our social climate today and you have postmodernism where the whole rationale seems to be Truth is whatever you want it to be, ultimately. We've got a rise in Marxist theory again. Not in the guise of the failed enterprise with Russia, the USSR, but the same principles applied. And the principle basically is power, might, is right. Right? We've seen that recently in the last century in politics and there seems to be a shift back towards that sort, of, that sort of thinking. All of these movements, I want to suggest to you, have demonic roots behind them. And if I'm right in saying that, in recognising that, we need to be busy praying Now, different ones might have different ideas about what's appropriate or inappropriate for a Christian in terms of social engagement. And that's fine. Each one of us can can wrestle with that and, and, and act in good conscience accordingly. But I can encourage everybody, regardless of their points of view, of the relationship, for example, between the church and the state, of their relationship of our obligation as Christians and as the church, as a community, towards uh, the, 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 the politics out there. One common denominator that we can share and we must share is the power of prayer. If we understand that there are spiritual forces, good and bad, out there, that there is a spiritual warfare happening out there, the only effective weapon we have is prayer and we need to be serious about that. We need to be busy praying. Now here's some stuff that kind of unsettled me a little bit and I don't want to use a lot of time but I, I want to pay attention to this uh, because it, it, is, it is challenging. Psalm 82 verses 1 and 6. God... And I've just noted, I don't want to get bogged down in, in, in this case, Hebrew grammar, etc., but, but it's necessary for us to understand to a degree. Elohim. Elohim. More often than not in the Old Testament, uh, that's the word that is translated God. When you have the personal name for Yahweh, it's normally, normally capitalized as, as Yahweh. Or capitalized as God, G-O-D. But otherwise, where the term God is used, whether it applies to Yahweh or some other entity, it's this word Elohim. But in the grammar, we can tell, and this is the puzzling thing about this statement, whether it's singular, in which case it's usually talking about or describing or referring to Yahweh, or plural, God, that is Elohim with the singular pronoun, presides in the great assembly He, that is Yahweh, renders judgment among the gods. That is Elohim with a plural pronoun, which speaks to an assembly of gods. And reading on in verse 6, I said you are gods. This is Yahweh addressing this same group, this same assembly. I said you are gods, you are all sons of the Most High. It's interesting, interesting. In Job... One day, the angels, and I've got a footnote there, and this is from the NIV version. It's, it's, it's interesting, they translated it angels, but it's not the word for angels. It's the word for this, or well, it's this phrase, sons of God. And when you connect that back to context like Psalm 82, we're back to this assembly of Elohim. What scholars today will usually refer to as the divine council, one day the angels, the sons of God, plural, came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. And Satan there is just a term for an adversary. It's not, it might be the devil, not necessarily the devil. We read on in Job chapter 2 and verse 1. On another day, the angels, same, same strategy, they've translated angels, but it literally says sons of God. The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. So the image here is Yahweh and this assembly of Elohim that come to present themselves to him. There's no question about the superiority, the otherness of Yahweh. Remember this, Yahweh alone is the creator. Everything else, including this Elohim, are created beings, creatures. But on the scale of things, they're pretty much up there. Psalm 89. The heavens praise your wonders, Lord. L-O-R-D in capitals, that signals Yahweh. Your faithfulness too in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord, who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. In Psalm 97 and verse 9, For you, Lord, Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all Elohim. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. And I wonder, though I don't have any eloquent explanations, I do want to impress upon you the wonder of it. And how little our understanding of that great big world out there, including the heavenlies, is. It ought to have a humbling influence upon us, I think. Back to Job. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked out off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? And what is who set its footings? And who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and the angels, there's our word again, the Elohim, the sons of God, shouted for joy. So let me just put this together in summary form. You have at the top, Yahweh, the I am, always has been, always will be, the eternal creator. Nothing compares with God. Nothing compares with Yahweh, God the most high. But then under him, thinking in in hierarchical terms, under him, this Yahweh made the gods, the Elohim, the divine council, and then under them, we have the angels who are also made by God. And angels, Malak, uh, classically conveys the idea of messengers, which sort of summarises the primary role of angels, the messengers of God. And we're given hints in scripture about like Michael as the, the archangel is identified for us. As best as I can tell, Michael is the only one that's called an archangel. There may be others, but, but it seems scripture is, identifies only Michael as, as an, an archangel, the archangel. And he seems to be associated with, with with warfare, a warrior angel. Then you've got Gabriel, who we know particularly well from the New Testament in, in announcing the birth of Christ, for example. Uh, he was a special messenger, it seems. And then you've got ordinary angels, if there is such a thing, ordinary but you know what I mean. The heavenly host, as it were, all of whom seem to have been present to witness Yahweh's creation of the physical world. Hmm. Now, if you're comfortable, I want to invite you to close your eyes because I'm inviting you to listen to the words but try and picture the words in your imagination. As we read from John's Apocalypse... Revelation chapters 4 and 5, as John describes the heavenly throne scene. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pearls of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is And is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created. And have their being. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. There's an interesting bit of artwork there to try and capture something of the image that John describes there, the heavenly throne, where you see God in his glory. where well, you can't see him because he's so glorious upon his throne, surrounded by the 24 elders who seem to be kings of some sort, not earthly kings, certainly, divine kings. And then those four creatures, Strange winged creatures. And then you'll notice in the background that host, that innumerable host of angels. That's real. It's unseen from our perspective, it's unheard from our perspective, except that John was privileged to witness these things and to communicate to us in scripture, something of the glory of these things. From our point of view though, this is the God that we acknowledge. This is the God that we serve. I don't know. Are the 24 elders that John describes and or the living creatures of Revelation 4 and 5, are they Yahweh's divine counsel that the Old Testament speaks of, the assembly of Elohim of the Old Testament? I don't know the answer to that. I suspect, maybe, certainly, probably, but the essence of it, regardless of what conclusion we might draw, the essence of it is undeniable. Um, An angel or angels are referred to some 279 times in the Bible. That's a lot. That's a lot. Which suggests to me that angels is a topic that we ought not to neglect, Um, pretend it's not there. It very much is there. Angels are never described in scripture as having wings. Now I feel like a bit of a party pooper in saying that. Because you ask anybody to draw an angel and they're going to start with the wings. That, and that's, that's understandable, but again, that's not the way scripture represent the uh, angels. Uh, I think they might be confused with the cherubim, who do have angels. Uh, the seraphim of Isaiah 6, the living creatures of Ezekiel 1, and as we just read in Revelation But angels appear, when they're described, when they're active and engaging with humanity, angels appear in male human form, often marked out by bright shining clothing or or bodily features. But, having said that, sometimes we know from Hebrews 13, sometimes they're here among us and we don't even know it. We don't even recognise them as, as angels. Angels were created by Christ, made a little higher than humans. Angels do not marry, that is, they do not procreate, nor do they die. And I put there in brackets of of ageing. We know in the broader scheme of things, those that might be described as fallen angels do have a fate that will be experienced as death at least permanent separation from God. The second death, as is described in, uh, in Revelation chapter 20. But it seems that these angelic beings, faithful angels and fallen angels, that they do not age and they don't procreate. And that in some sense, that approaches our existence in the resurrection when we're given resurrection bodies. Angels are fallible free will beings. They have choice. And some of course chose in the past to rebel against God. Jude 6, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Angels, like humans, are now subject to Christ. Christ who rules with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. and Angels are not to be worshipped. And that's an important point to make. It seems like it might have been a a problem in the church at Colossae. Angels, as marvellous as they are, are servants of God. And wherever... In scripture it's recorded that the response, an understandable response to an angelic being was to bow down and worship. He said, no, 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 don't you do that. Worship God alone. For example, John's reaction. uh, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I'd heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. And he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets, and with all who keep the words of this scroll, worship God. Angels have an interest in human affairs. And this is, I guess, where it starts to become of special interest and relevance to us. Luke chapter 15, for example, in the same way I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Angels have an investment, have an interest in our spiritual well-being and when one person any person every person who turns to God and is reconciled with God the angelic host rejoice the angelic host rejoice first peter chapter 1 peter tells us about how how the writing of the prophets of old the old test the writers of the old testament scripture for example how they didn't really understand a lot of what they were saying, that it was not about them, but it was about a future time. It was about Messiah and the church. The very things we're told by Peter that the angels longed to look into, yearned to understand. They're curious, curious in a very invested way, about God's plans and God's purposes for us. Angels play a role in protecting God's people. Psalm 91. Now we know this from the temptation of Christ and it's certainly applied to Christ as the devil picked it up and applied it, trying to lead Christ to stray from God. But in principle this applies to all and every child of God. No harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And in the New Testament, Matthew 18, So you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. And finally in Hebrews, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Now again, I don't want to get speculative except to note the fundamental truth, the claim here that all angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Angels are on our side angels are concerned about us I guess that graphic that I've got there you can begin to understand how historic I think it was about the the third or fourth century before angels started to be represented with wings and even here uh, represented as, as a winged being with uh, I'm assuming that that's a that's a woman and again from an artistic position of, of license it's an attempt to convey that sense of Tenderness, that caring role that Scripture assigns to angels in their relationship to the people of God. Mm. I guess guardian angel is the phrase that's become historically become common. In Luke 16, the story about Lazarus and the rich man. Just to note one highlight there in relation to angels, it was the angels that carried him to Abraham's side. And I guess that's why, historically, angels have become associated with death. You'll often find if you go to a, a, um, a graveyard for people that were wealthy enough to, to sort of pay for a carving, as it were, very often they'd opt for an angelic image to have on you on your gravestone and the imagery really is very christian here is here is an angel guarding me until the time of the resurrection that's the image that's being message that's been communicated through that through that art form you know we could continue when it comes to jesus's life and ministry it was riddled with the activity of Angels, I don't know if you've thought about this, but an angel, specifically we're told Gabriel, announced the birth of John the baptiser as herald of Messiah. Uh, in announcing Jesus' birth, he, uh, Gabriel appeared to Mary and Joseph uh, and then an angelic host appeared to the shepherds to announce the birth of Christ. The flight into Egypt and the return to Nazareth was orchestrated by an angel. Comforting Jesus during and after his temptation. And again, we find angels involved in the comforting of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Twelve legions, says Jesus, were available to him to rescue him from crucifixion. Angels announced Jesus' resurrection from the grave. Angels serve King Jesus' purposes. Acts, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Acts is, is full of a number of stories where there is angelic activity included. Angels finally will accompany Jesus at his second coming. Just in passing, because I, 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 it's sort of like a loose end, I feel, would be left hanging. The angel of the Lord is an interesting phenomenon in the Old Testament and um, here for example in Exodus chapter 3 the narrative about uh, Moses and the burning bush or the bush that didn't burn um, we could as easily look at the account of uh, um, Abraham's offering up of Isaac to see the same exchange and the same phenomenon represented and I've just highlighted here notice if you will The angel, looking at the yellow highlight, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. Who's appeared to Moses? An angel or the angel of the Lord. But if you'll notice the blue highlight text, when the Lord saw, and that Lord, you'll notice his capitals, Yahweh, when Yahweh saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. There is this, overlap, if you will, where the angel, what's described as the angel of the Lord, seems to actually be talking about Yahweh. Now you can take this or leave it. It's, it's a reality. Many conclude that uh, the angel of the Lord is, in fact, a, an epiphany, uh, uh, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, what John describes as the Word, with a capital W, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, that this is a pre-incarnate expression or activity on the part of the Word. That's a way of trying to reconcile this, the angel of the Lord being almost overlapping with the idea of Yahweh's presence. So, next week... As we continue to think biblically about angels and demons, um, we'll look forward to Peter's lesson with part two of talking about demonology and the occult. I want to close with this reading and then I'm going to quickly move aside to allow Johan to come forward and lead a song and uh, then Johan will lead us in a benediction. This is about us. This is about us. What a privileged position we share as the people of God in Christ Jesus. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. The writer's description of those awesome events that surrounded the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. The establishment of the law of Moses. The establishment of the, what we would call the old covenant. No. Nah. You've come to something better than that, says the writer of Hebrews, verse 22. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You remember that image that we noted before? of the throne scene in heaven with Yahweh on his throne in all of his glory, surrounded by the 24 elders and the four living creatures, all falling down in praise and worship of Yahweh. And then the chorus of innumerable angels surrounding. What the writer of Hebrews is saying, you transpose yourself, Christian, into that audience because that's where you are, that's where you belong. We wonder about the heavenlies. We ought to think about our home. Our home. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire.